Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. On July 31st, the federal eviction moratorium issued by Trump's CDC in September of 2020 expired after Nancy Pelosi's futile attempt to extend the moratorium through a failed unanimous consent vote. Then on August 2nd, Biden instructed landlords to halt evictions for 30 days while his administration scrambled to extend the moratorium. The CDC then issued a new 19-page order on August 3rd, which halts evictions in counties with heightened levels of community transmission of COVID, with an emphasis on the Delta variant. This new moratorium expires on October 3rd, 2021. There was a three-day delay between when the CDC issued the new order and the expiration of the old order. Seems like incompetence, right? Probably in some part, but there is some nominal legal and political maneuvering here. On June 29, 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling in Alabama Association of Realtors versus the U.S. Department of Human Services, in which the court declined to end the moratorium a month early by extending the stay ordered at the district court level. But they also very clearly stated that the moratorium was beyond the authority of the CDC because the CDC can only regulate sources of dangerous infections to human beings. I think the Biden admin intentionally allowed the previous moratorium to elapse and then issued a new order predicated on some public health concept related to COVID. This was a decently constructed political strategy to extend the moratorium without congressional consent. It doesn't matter whether the new order is legal, who cares if it's not, it will take another 10 months for the courts to reach a determination. The other thing this does now and we've seen this time and time and time again from both parties, is the failure of Congress to act allows the president to step in and do something, and then they rely on the Supreme Court to rule whether or not it's within the rights of the president to do this act, and the president always argues, Congress hasn't done anything, I had to do this to save the country. Right? To save the republic, I had to do this. Or as Richard Nixon says... Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. In the Supreme Court case in June, they basically said that what the CDC did was illegal. But the court doesn't have the ability to do anything about it. Yeah, what are they going to do? Who's going to be held in contempt? Like, hold the entire executive branch in contempt and, like, put them in the basement of the Supreme Court building or something? The entire separation of powers, Congress is the entity that is supposed to do checks and balances on the executive branch. The Supreme Court determines whether it's legal or not, and then Congress should figure out some remedy to either impeach, if it was such a heinous crime that the president needs to be held accountable for overseeing the CDC doing all this illegal shit. And what's kind of interesting about this particular case is that Trump did the original moratorium, and then it just carried over for Biden for the next basically seven months. So it's literally both parties being party to this illegal moratorium. And there's no accountability. There's no repercussions. Nobody gives a shit. So the executive branch just has the ability to do whatever they want effectively in this scenario. And it looks like Biden figured that out. And three days after the original moratorium expired, he just re-upped it and said, who gives a fuck? I think this is the danger that the Republican Party has set for precedent. By the Republican Party not holding their president accountable, it sets the stage then for no party holding their candidates accountable. Because why would you ever want to cede power, ever? Because there's no benefit from game theory to ever cede power. If the electorate would hammer you for not getting rid of this corrupt politician, that's one thing. But it seems that majority of every district seems to be safe 
in whatever cycle they're in, besides like what thirty five seats a year, ten percent of Congress maybe switches seats, maybe a cycle. So only ten percent are held accountable, which is not even enough to have a majority. It, there's l- literally no accountability right now within the United States electorate. And it's a lot easier for the executive to take action and take heat from the electorate once every four years than it is to have the entire Congress have to go fight this battle in each of their states and have like a national media discussion about whether the moratorium should or should not have been extended. Not a single representative has to go back to their constituency and be like, I believed in extending the moratorium or I didn't believe in extending the moratorium. This will never come up in a congressional election. Nobody gives a fuck. I don't even know if it'll come up in if Biden runs for re-election. Did it come up when Trump ran against Biden? Like the moratorium was already there and nobody gave a shit. Good question. Do you think there's more landlords or more like renters in the population? There's definitely more renters. But do those renters vote and participate in political anything? Probably not. Well, I know somebody, my cousin has two rental units and he can't pay his mortgage then why do he want to become a landlord of only two units? That's that's the problem. Let's go purely business analysis here. I do not feel sorry for anybody if they have that shitty of an operation. Because if they can't roll and roll and roll mortgage after mortgage after mortgage and get 200 units, then they're not landlords. They're like the parasite. I mean, they're all parasites. All landlords are parasites. But basically, their small business, quote-unquote, isn't even making enough to cover things like replacing a furnace if it goes bad in one of the units. It doesn't even make any sense to have two units. Unless, of course, your parents gifted them to you because throughout history, you illegally got land by, like, murdering people, which is what the U.S. did. Then, of course, why sell them? Just rent them out because they already paid for it. But if you just went out and actually bought two rental units, like, that's a fucking terrible investment. Yeah, it financially makes no sense. And the only way it makes sense is that if everything goes perfectly correct, the bank will make a bunch of money, the renter's will be exploited to the end of the earth and you'll pocket some nominal amount of money for doing literally no work. It makes no sense. And in 15 years, you're going to try to sell them off in order to retire or something stupid like that. You don't make money in rentals by having a onesie twosie. You make money by having a 200, 300s. And this is tied into the entire building and development political scheme that we've talked about in other episodes. But the general idea behind rental property is that it all needs to be vertically integrated. And you need to be able to do stuff at scale so that if you're going to reside, you reside everything and you buy 200 units worth of siding. It's bulk rate discounted. That's the rental con. Or you're a builder. Or you're already in the trades. Or you sell house insurance. Right, You have to sell or own one part of this. And I know this is a rabbit hole, but basically we don't feel sorry for anybody who takes a risk on things like rental units. Because remember, it's still a business. They still exploit workers. They still steal your money. Right, They still try to give you the minimum required of upkeep to keep you happy while trying to extract as much money as you as possible. That's what they try to do. It's still a business. So anytime a bougie capitalist or petite bourgeois piece of shit says, oh, my business is failing, good. Like, who does a rental person employ? Nobody. Like, who gives a shit if you fail? Let the banks take it and rent them out again. It's not going to change that much for the renter. They're still fucked. Yes, and that's the key point. There's fundamentally no difference between having a landlord that's part of a massive conglomerate and a landlord that has three buildings. Because you're still fucked. You still are in the debt cycle of not having enough money to get out of the debt cycle. Can a worker rent and save enough money to ever buy a house? And we can show you the financials, and the answer is no, you can't. Unless you find some neoliberal group that's willing to pay for your down payment or the, or you get a, F, a USDA loan or an FHA loan or something that's exploitive, even through your own government, a worker can never get enough money down. 
Why? You can't save that much money. So if the report comes out that's true, that a minimum wage person can't uh, afford a two-bedroom house to rent, and then you ask yourself, okay, what do I have to have to rent? And you say the average house is like, what, $300,000 in the United States? I have no idea. Sure. Let's say it's three hundred k It's in that range. You got to have 3% down. So you have to have $9,000 down plus closing. You're looking at about $15,000 you have to have in cash money, plus good credit, plus your credit to, or your debt to credit ratio, whatever that is, the income to debt ratio has to be high enough, right? And so you ask yourself then, how does the working class get good credit? How do they live without extending too much credit? And how do they save money? And the answer is they can't. And that's by design so that capital along the way can extract money from them as part of needing to live. So that's why this entire eviction moratorium is important because as a result of COVID, people have lost their jobs. They've, their hours have been reduced. There's been unexpected medical needs that have come up. And we all know that healthcare in the U.S. is absolute trash. So if you get slightly sick, there goes your entire $15,000 nest egg to potentially buy a house. It's gone. Bye-bye. So the eviction moratorium limits the negative impact to renters. And that's good. But the real objective or point of the eviction moratorium is to ease the burden of landlords that are of a certain size that they can just outlast the absence of a payment to totally undercut the smaller landlording industry and basically centralize or monopolize or co-locate all rental units in a given locality being controlled by one single capitalist entity that can fix prices, that can have political power, all that good corrupt stuff that capital is so interested in endeavoring towards. So Look at it from the other perspective, too, of let's say the eviction moratorium doesn't get extended. The people that are collecting rent, or in this case, not collecting rent, they're still not collecting rent. Like nothing has functionally changed except the potential of having the workers not be exploited in the future. They're now basically absolved of their current lease. They get evicted. They have to go somewhere else. And on paper, they're not a source of income in three months or six months when this finally ends. And the entire goal of the landlording business is to have a perpetual monthly payment from as many people as possible. So if that requires a three-month pause, fine. I'll just I'll just wait three months. And if that means some small-time landlord doesn't make it, I don't give a shit because I'm big business and I want to make money. Berkshire Hathaway, they don't care. Most of your big banks don't care. So what we're getting at here is that is that Congress's failure to act means that the CDC was, again, put on the holy pedestal, which is they fucked the entire COVID response up, but we're going to give them praise and glory because they did the moratorium, because the Dems failed to act again, because they don't know how to whip their own party, because they don't want to act. Again, they don't want to have to do anything. And Biden did nothing. This is not like they've done nothing, because at any point in time, they can reverse the moratorium. He could, for example absolve student loan debt that's federally held. But he doesn't because that doesn't benefit capital in any way, shape, or form. Joe Biden's power as an executive in the three branches of the U.S. government is a pattern that we're seeing in the United States where instead of having Congress act, it's easier to just defer power to the executive branch to do whatever Congress implicitly wants to do anyway. And by Congress, I mean capital because capital's interests are represented in Congress. And there's no repercussions to just having the executive do everything because nobody cares. Nobody pays attention. Nobody cares. Biden hasn't done anything his entire presidency, and nobody cares. You know, you can ask any one of your neighbors, is Biden a good president, or has he done enough for the American people? And depending on what side of the political spectrum on, it'll only be a political statement. It won't be actually any any fundamental 
analysis of what Biden's done. Has Biden, the Democratic Party, rolled back Trump's tax cuts using reconciliation? No. Or have they gotten rid of all student debt? No. Okay. Have they, are the kids still in cages? Yes. All right. So did they actually stop the building of the border wall or are they just canceling contracts? They're just canceling contracts. Like, did they pull anybody from the border and move them anywhere? No. They still have the largest, like, army on, on the borders. Yes. The government has the border patrol. It's the largest army, like standing army. It's not quite the army, but it's a, it's a federal police enforcement that's basically like a standing army like an occupying force on the border states. ICE and the Border Patrol are, are an occupying force because they have federal authority on those states. And I don't give a shit about states, nor do I give a shit about the Border Patrol, but I will tell you this. If you want to communicate an issue with any of your libertarian friends, ask them that question. Should the federal government have a standing army on the border? And ask them, tell, basically tell them that. Now, they're bootlicking. They're going to say, yeah, because they hate brown people. But they're going to tell you also that it's a government overreach. It'll make their mind melt because they're just ridiculous assholes. And, and honestly, you shouldn't have libertarian friends. So ICE is another example of power that's been created out of the executive branch. ICE, like you said, is a literal standing army in the United States, the homeland, that is controlled by the executive branch. Congress created it in 2003-ish when the Department of Homeland Security was created. And it was supposed to do what? Just concentrate power into the executive so the executive could do whatever he wanted? And I say he because we've only had male presidents, right? We haven't had a female war criminal yet. We want one. Just know that the next two lines of session for presidency are women. So we're getting there. I'd really like a cop to be president, too. Oh, God, I can't wait for that. A cop or a billionaire. Or a hundred millionaire. Somebody with a lot of ice cream in their freezers. There has been a consolidation of power, presidency over presidency over presidency. And whether or not it's the president doing what he wants and then not having any laws passed to check him. So in this case, like remember Bush fired all those lawyers, no repercussions on firing federal employees, torture, right? Black sites, all that stuff. No one cares. Gitmo still open, right? You have under Clinton, you had basically the the transfer of like all of the Glass-Steagall and all of the ability to regulate the banks transitioned over to the presidency. You had the same thing under Bush. Another transition of bank regulations over to the presidency instead of through Congress. Bush's transfer of his ability under, I think it was the end of 2007-8, right? So you're talking about the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, where I believe power and authority was designated to the Treasury Secretary, which is appointed by the executive branch. The Supreme Court allowed Obama to murder a U.S. citizen without any trial in foreign country. Like, there's so much power that Congress just gives the presidency that that eventually there won't be any more power to give. Congress is supposed to have the power of the purse. And the power of the purse is supposed to regulate and do the spending in, in all of the, the entire running of the country. What Congress does, they just defer to the president by saying, here's a big chunk of money, do what you want. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.